So, so like we said in the beginning, uh, tonight is the second part in our series on addiction, and uh, we have four uh, panelists here who are gracious enough to join us on a Sunday evening. And uh, the format's going to work like this. Uh, each panelist is going to speak uh, to their kind of specialty and, and speak from their own experience uh, when it comes to addiction. Uh, they're going to speak for 10 minutes each, and then after that, the rest of the time is going to be devoted to your questions. So you'll note that there are note cards on your tables, as well as pens. If you are a person who generally does not like to speak up in groups like this, but uh, have questions that you would like to ask, all you have to do is just put your question on the note card, hold it up high, and uh, Wendy or I will come around and grab that note card from you, and we will ask on your behalf. That is totally no problem. other than that, we will also take questions if folks just want to raise their hand. I'm going to introduce our panelists, and then, and then we'll, start, we'll start hearing from them. So uh, Andy Garcia-Ruz is a licensed clinical professional counselor, licensed clinical addictions counselor, certified co-occurring disorders professional diplomate, medication-assisted recovery specialist, and res- registered play therapist. She's currently working as a treatment consultant for American Addiction Centers. And uh, her role is to connect those struggling with substance abuse by connecting them to treatment. So that is one of our panelists. Another one of our panelists is Sister Melissa Letts, and she serves as the pastoral care coordinator for the Dooley Center in Atchison, Kansas. Um, It's a nursing facility in Atchison, Kansas. There it is. It's right there. She holds a master's in pastoral ministries from Aquinas Institute and is a certified spiritual director. We also have Dr. Robert Peru. He's an associate professor of social work at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Social Work. He's a member of the UMKC Social Sciences Institutional Review Board, as well as the Chancellor's Divinity Council, and is an alumni and doctoral committee advisory board member of the Council on Social Work Education Minority Fellowship Program. Uh, And Dr. Peru's research has focused on the interface of American Indian and mainstream systems of care. Uh, Dr. Pru has actually published research on many things, <laughs> uh, um, but he, he also published some research on the effect of the Native American church involvement on alcohol abuse outcomes. And uh, the other panelist that we have tonight is Sarah Pigrell. Uh, she's a local artist and activist whose understanding of addiction is firsthand. She is nearly three years recovered from a 15-year struggle with anorexia and bulimia. Uh, She's an advocate for community-based recovery, empowerment through mindfulness, and promoting a culture of mental health awareness and acceptance. So let's give a round of applause for our panelists. And with that being said, I'm picking you to go first. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate everybody coming out. And thanks, Nick, for inviting me out to the panel Um, So whenever I speak to addiction, I'm going to be referring from my perspective, which is going to be relating to substance abuse and not process addictions or other eating disorder realm addictions. So mine's just going to be dealing with drugs and alcohol. Um, Now, when uh, Nick asked me to speak, he kind of just said to kind of briefly touch on what treatment looks like from an addiction standpoint. Um, So feel free as I'm talking, start thinking of your questions, and if anything's too much or too little, just kind of let me know as far as tell me more about that or less about that, okay? Just because I don't know what everybody's background is and what your um, knowledge base is from this. But from the addiction standpoint, um, what we do now in the treatment world is you're going to see a lot of treatment um, places around the country 
really structure treatment, number one, based on what their theory of addiction is. So when we look at addiction, there's different models of addiction. I'm not going to go through all of them just because they're a little bit broad and they're real in-depth, but a couple of them are going to be um, the moral model of addiction, or also sometimes called choice theory. So with the moral model of addiction, it's going to be looking at addiction as a sin. It'll be looking at addiction as a choice. Those are similar things. Then you're going to have the disease model of addiction, which is what I'm sure most of the people in the room has probably heard about. The disease model addiction is very much within mainstream acceptance, and most of the treatment programs nationwide um, base their treatment on this model. And then the last most prominent of these is going to be the biopsychosocial model of addiction. And so from this addiction model standpoint, you're going to look at addiction as being caused by the trifecta of the biological components, like somebody's genetic um, components, their uh, psychological, whether they're predisposed or they have some mental health, other co-occurring addiction, and their sociological. So whether that's their SES, their socioeconomic status, maybe the environment that they were raised in, and they're going to look at that as all of those components together as to being what has caused the addiction. So that being said, once you've established which model and theory of addiction you kind of ascribe to, then you're going to move forward into how do you treat that. And they're all going to be very different. And I'm not going to touch on the different points that other different people on the panel will speak to, so I'm just going to kind of speak into the one major two areas, which is really biopsychosocial and disease model. So with the disease model, you're going to see your typical... A 12-step approach is going to be very much in-depth and ingrained into that, as well as cognitive behavioral therapies. Um, when you look at SAMHSA and the NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, they're going to only recommend um, evidence-based practices when it comes to the treatment of drugs and alcohol. And what they do is they do this with research. So they go through and they'll say, what works? And then they have a list of all these different ones. So as you can imagine, leading the foreground is cognitive behavioral therapy. And with cognitive behavioral therapy, that's going to be done both with the disease model of addiction and in the biopsychosocial model. So when people are struggling with addiction, typically what you'll see at treatment centers is if at least mainstream, I would say probably about 50% of the 16,000 treatment centers nationwide, um, like residential level, not counting outpatient, they're going to do cognitive behavioral therapy, and probably some infusion of 12-step. And I'm not going to speak to the 12-step. I think you're going to speak to 12-step a little bit. Is that right? Ish. Ish? Okay. Um, not sure. But along those lines, the big thing that we're seeing now is that cognitive behavioral therapy is a really very well-recognized, useful piece. As a therapist, I do use a lot of CBT in my practice. However, it also really matters about where the person is in their addiction. If you're looking at somebody who is in detox and they're intoxicated and maybe they've been on like a alcohol use for like a, maybe a week and you're trying to work with them in that part of their brain and say, hey, 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 wake up here, maybe they're not in a really good space to be hearing that. So that's why when we structure treatment, we go through our detox, then we get into your actual therapies. So the behavioral and the cognitive components are going to come after they've stabilized enough to kind of be present and be with you. Um, when it comes to the new trend, and this is controversial in my field in substance abuse, is medication-assisted treatment. Um, 
it's based in the premise of the kind of like the harm reduction model, which I'm not sure if anybody remembers in the 90s when the heroin was, a, well, it's kind of come back now, but in the early 90s, heroin was a really big thing, um, especially in the Seattle, Washington area and other areas. Um, the harm reduction model, what it does is it enables people to do things like the uh, clean needle exchange, where people can come in and return their needles that are dirty and get a new one. So the idea is maybe they're not stopping the problem, but they're reducing or making the harm less because that way maybe somebody's not sharing, maybe not passing on incommunicable diseases, et cetera. So with medication-assisted treatment, the reason why this is controversial is because not everybody believes in that. They don't all believe. Um, for example, if somebody wants to go live at an Oxford house, which is a sober living environment, <laughs> Um, you can't be on medication-assisted treatment to be in those places because they would consider that you not being sober, for example. So what you have that is people who are maybe using heroin and they want to get off of heroin, so maybe they start taking Suboxone or Methadone, but usually you'll see them taper down to Suboxone after they've been on Methadone. And this long-term treatment can continue for years. Right now, the government has been putting a lot of grant money out for any treatment facilities who are advocating and utilizing medication-assisted treatment. And so they've even, this, was, this is huge. It used to be just physicians could prescribe this. Now they're going to be moving this down to mid-level practitioners, such as physician's assistants and your nurse practitioners. And this is humongous, guys, because the, the caseload of the doctors was this small, so only a few people at a time. Now they're like at, I think, 275 on their caseload. So when it comes to addiction treatment, you're going to see continued movement in the medication-assisted treatment as a component alongside with your therapy. Um, and like I said, depending on where you are and what your treatment model is at different facilities, you're going to see either that disease model placing with the 12-step and the cognitive, or you're going to be looking at the cognitive behavioral therapy with those medication-assisted components alongside of it. So I don't know where I'm on time, but I feel like that was pretty close to about 10 minutes. Am I good? Awesome. Thank you. All right. So which way am I passing, left or right? Okay. Here we go. Oh, I guess it's me then. <clears throat> Um, gosh, um, I guess, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, exactly what to talk about, because I can talk about substance abuse and addiction from a lot of different uh, places. Um, um, you know, my, my life story is kind of a biopsychosocial and spiritual um, relationship with uh, substances. Uh, uh, as uh, an American Indian, I don't think there's any other group out there that alcohol, alcohol abuse, has been so entangled with politics and oppression, and uh, and it's the kind of thing that I can remember dealing with as 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 a child. You know, being being uh, being taught that uh, you know if we were going to have to live out here in white society, we we're going to have to learn how to you know drink like gentlemen. And uh, you know, my dad, you know, came from the Rosebud uh, Reservation, and uh, he. Um, you know, for, for the first part of his life, you know, he didn't drink because it was, you know, against the law to have alcohol on the reservation. And, and when he left to go to uh, go into the service, of course, he, he started drinking. And um, uh, <clears throat> so it was always something that was that was central to our lives. The, you know, this inter interface of of of, uh, of alcohol and 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 race and politics and uh, and this ever-present other thing, which I didn't realize at the time, was was just oppression. And um, uh, so, you know, I, I go through life, and um, you know, I become an alcoholic, and um, uh, and I and um, 
and ironically, <laughs> uh, you know, I when I go when I you know take my turn to go into the into the service, uh, uh, I end up doing a stint for some years for four, three years as a drug and alcohol education specialist. So here I am, somebody who's practicing alcoholic, <laughs> uh, and um, and you know being the one who's educating people. So I so I, I gained a lot of knowledge about what alcoholism was and was was really clear. You know, it's like oh, I'm pretty smart. I can read this stuff, and uh, and this is exactly what I am. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, but that didn't help me to 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 stop it, you know, because there was there was so just so many layers of so many things that wouldn't let me just leave it, you know. You know, I'm supposed to be that. You know, what would everybody in my you know circle of people think, you know, if I was the non-drinker? Uh, even though, if when I finally did step away from alcohol, I discovered that well, I would be pretty normal <laughs> because most most people didn't drink uh, 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 you know I just there was just a lot of surprising things I discovered uh, when I when I stepped away from all of that and uh, uh, <clears throat> um, you know I think another contradictory element of, of my life was I, I had um, really failed to resolve the kind of the very rigid ideals that you would see in religious organizations between, you know, what is God and, you know, you know, so there'd be this religious organization, there would be, you know, my dad was, was, was Catholic and his family also practiced the traditional religion and uh, my mom was, was a Protestant faith and, uh, uh, and it, they, they all seemed like very rigid, you know, <laughs> and um, um, uh, so I just, you know, it's like, well, there's just this bunch of crap. And so I, uh, you know, decided I was going to become uh, a, an atheist. And so uh, yet when, when it came time for me to uh, get over my alcoholism, I, I um, <clears throat> had that happen. You know, it was very, very uh, interesting, the, the, uh, the passage that... Uh, somebody read when we started about getting pulled from a ditch because literally I was pulled from a ditch in, in, a, in, a, in a really a, a place of despair and, uh, and kind of lifted back up. Uh, then I was arrested, but <laughs> uh, so it wasn't quite the same story. But, <laughs> um, um, but I, I'd had a, a really tremendous um, uh, uh, automobile accident at which point I had I'd, I had been pronounced dead when they when they came to the, and uh, so here I am, this person who's like, you know, there is no God, there's this is all a bunch of crap, and yet I'm having these experiences that of, you know, all the things that, that, that the people who believe in God talk about have, have happened to me. And um, um, uh, so one of the things that, that I, I did, I, I can remember in that moment of, of um, uh, coming away from that, going, you know, I need to talk to a medicine man, and which would have been a real surprising thing to me to, to hear myself say, you know. And I said, I need to avoid. I don't. I need to not talk to a psychiatrist because <laughs> 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 I was afraid of what would happen to me, you know. And but um, uh, that they would think I was crazy. And I was. And I, then I was crazy for a while. I mean, I, I was a, I was a real horrible drinker. You know, I was the kind of drinker that was drinking, uh, you know. A case or two, or sometimes three cases of beer a day, and uh, so I was just drinking from sun up to sundown, uh, and um, uh, uh, 
uh, and was drinking bad enough that I went into delirium when I when I quit. And so it was it was it was a rough haul for a while. Uh, uh, <clears throat> but uh, this thing that happened to me, uh, this spiritual experience that happened to me in that near death experience, uh, just seemed to have put things in my way that made life work out for me. You know, and, and I you know I found myself. Uh, just doing, being in the oddest place, doing the, the oddest things. You know, I was someone who had uh, uh, gotten out of high school with a grand 0 0.92 GPA, <laughs> and and about six months after I'm, I've quit drinking. I'm working on a construction crew, and for fun on Sunday afternoon, I go to a university library and I start reading. Uh, about Buddhism and, <laughs> and Hinduism and, and these various world religions and it's like I have no idea why I'm doing this or why I'm drawn to this and so so I, I kind of got on this 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 spiritual odyssey but I, I never really kind of lost that sense of of you know yeah this is this is this is a game here with, with religion and, and whatnot and so I was always a bit of a skeptic and I guess I remain uh, something of that to this day uh, uh, but you know, it's, it's real clear that my my um, recovery, moving from somebody who was a who was a you know at a grand zero point point nine two grade grade point average in high school to being the chair of an academic department with a PhD uh, in a right down the street here at EMKC is. Uh, you know, something happened to me that uh, I would have I would have never never be believed growing up because you know Indian boys especially didn't dream of doing this kind of stuff. There wasn't a script for us to do this kind of stuff. So I'm a strong proponent of of this of a spiritual uh, approach to uh, recovering from really anything. Uh, you know, my my um, you know. Brief experience with the 12 step programs was I didn't, I didn't need to be admitting powerlessness. You know, there was all this stuff about powerlessness, powerlessness, and uh, you know, I, I was, I, I started powerless. You know, that was where we started in life was powerless, and so what I needed was to find power, and so I found power through education. I found power through going back to our tribes' traditions and going through our. Through our spiritual processes and discovering, you know, you know, some knowledge about about our people. It's like, oh, you know, we don't drink at the rates that people think we do. And 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 becoming educated, I discovered, you know, that with except for African Americans, American Indians drink less than any other racial group. And and often most people think that it's completely the other way around. That that. Uh, that uh, we all drink worse, but we don't. And um, you know, and I look at what's similar between us, and we, we're both very spiritual, spiritually minded uh, groups of people. So I think there's there's a lot of of um, of um, power that you know. Even though I'm a strong believer that a lot of tribalism is is really tearing the world apart right now, because it's it's kind of a a, a tribalism that doesn't embrace the difference as good, it embraces the difference as something to be afraid of and, and, and bad. Um, but there's a lot of power in going back to who you are and finding out who you are and, um, 
and finding, you know, in my case, my your people's my people's way of, of, of recovering. And so so it really led me when I was doing my doctoral work to look at the Native American church, which I'm not a part of. Uh, but they're a, a much maligned group because they use uh, peyote in their ceremonies. And, uh, and they're also kind of the go-to uh, treatment for a, a lot of American Indian groups. Uh, and uh, uh, and um, uh, <clears throat> so it's, uh, you know, very much kind of in keeping with, with harm reduction. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's not even the kind of of drug that would really get somebody high. It's really the, what gets people sober in the Native American churches, the having access to a, uh, uh, a fellowship of, of people who are, who are, you know, like them, who've often been through the same experiences, uh, uh, who uh, will reach out and support and then 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 to have a social norm of we don't drink and so so um, uh, you know my my, uh, my journey I think has continued you know I, I continue to offer you know these alternative alternative visions of of recovery um, that you know the, the 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 main recovery agent is that people just simply quit drinking you know when you look at at epidemiological studies, uh, uh, about 38% of the people who were substance abusers who then do not be, then are later are not substance abusing, just do it. They just change and they, and they do it because of whatever reason and we don't know why and, uh, uh, and it isn't necessarily, you know, that you need to admit powerlessness, or even though for some people they need to admit powerlessness, for a certain class of people, I think they need to admit powerlessness and and become humble and and approach uh, recovery. But I think for for a lot of racial minorities, for a lot of women, particularly women who've been abused, you know, they need to have programs that empower them, and uh, because we basically use alcohol and drugs to feel good, and when you're oppressed you don't feel good. So I've seen my one minute go by, so. <laughs> All right. Um, I am Sarah Pickrell. I'm married to that guy, Nick, that was talking a lot earlier. Not a lot. It was like a, a, an appropriate amount. Right amount. Right amount of talking. Yes. Sorry, Nick. Okay. Oh, man. Okay. So like Nick said um, earlier, I am nearly three years recovered. I will be in May, on May 12th specifically. I consider it my second birthday. Um, from a 15-year struggle with anorexia and bulimia. Um, it's a tricky thing to talk about, I think, in this context because... Um, we often think of, of alcohol like substance when we think of addiction. I think that that's um, not simple, but it is, is like kind of straightforward because we've seen that over and over again. Um, I'd love to hear more what Andy has to say about process addiction now because this, this is fascinating to me. But um, I can only really speak to my experience. I don't really have any formal training. Um, I can tell you that it was uh, incredibly hard, harder at some times, um, at some points than it was at others. But um, essentially, it started out with me just uh, skipping meals here and there when I was 12, um, trying to fit in with some girls at school. Um, and it progressed from there, as these things often 
due to skipping more meals, um, not experiencing the kind of results that I wanted, which was weight loss and um, to meet a certain ideal, look a certain way. Um, so when I was in high school, I found a way to uh, expedite the process um, by purging, which in bulimia, I don't know if many of you know a lot about it, but it's often through laxatives, exercise, or uh, vomiting. So um, mine was uh, vomiting primarily, and so that was something um, that plagued me for 11 years. Started kind of a once in a while thing. Um, quickly turned to becoming uh, about daily. And uh, before I started experiencing any success in recovery, um, it would happen 10 to 12 times a day, um, maybe more, I would lose count. Um, but the cycle is, it is, it's a vicious one because when you restrict food, your body kind of goes into this primal hunger mode. Um, so the second you start eating, you can't stop, um, which is a binge. And it's not um, like a, a food baby, like maybe some of us feel right now, that, <laughs> that fullness. But it is, um, I mean, it's, it's like a tremendous amount of food. Like you've seen people in eating contests, like this is what it was. Um, it's, it's kind of a, I, I think eating disorders have kind of become glamorized a little bit in our culture, specifically anorexia. But it is, um, it's a violent, violent thing on the body, um, I think bulimia is particularly violent. It causes um, a lot of health concerns, um, heart issues, um, probably being the the worst of them. Um, I am lucky to get by mostly unscathed. But um, anyway, so to speak more to recovery, because I could spend this whole time talking about stories and um yeah some some pretty rough memories but also some really loving times my mom's actually sitting in front of me and she's um she's been my uh my cheerleader for all this um for sure since the beginning but i um i went through all kinds of therapy um like kind of what you think of the traditional one-on-one um group therapy spent a month in rehab um took all kinds of drugs, visited psychiatrists, nutritionists, did this weird thing where I had like uh, electrodes on my body. I don't remember what that was. <laughs> some fun some fun experimental things and nothing seemed to work. And I think I was just so resigned to the fact that this was my life. And um, for a long time, I thought if I lived to be 30, it would be like a miracle um, because I had kept my body weight so low for so long um, and had just kind of depleted, I think, every every motivation that I had. So um, spring of 2014, um, I Nick and I just got engaged like a month before. Um, and this sort of like idea of addiction was looming over me because um, if there's if there's like two things I would want you to know about the way that addiction, um, it, it happens is that Um, I don't believe addiction is a choice. There's like really, it may be a choice for, um, it may be a choice for someone not to drink if they don't struggle, or it may be a choice um, for someone to eat a normal meal. But um, when you're in the throes of addiction, your brain does not work that way. It does not see that path. Um, And addiction serves a purpose. I mean, there's a reason that um, those who struggle put themselves through hell, and it's because um, it's because they have to survive. I think I use the words like struggle. I struggled with addiction, but really I think it's more about like the survival. I survived it. 
um, because it's um, just to get to the next task, just to get to work that day, or just to have a normal conversation with a friend. Um, if your mind is so focused on that next high, whatever it may be, like that's that's where you're at, and you really don't have a choice. But um, so anyway, for me, the um, kind of funny, ironic twist of the whole thing, after <laughs> God knows how much money. Um, was spent on recovery efforts. And I, by the way, I don't discount any of that. I think it's all part of a journey, but um, there has to be a, um, a certain amount of participation that I don't think was there for me. Um, I ended up in some weird Google search. I don't know what I was searching, but I discovered this online support group um, called the Bulimia Recovery Program, I think, BRP. And um, I joined this uh, this online group, and it was similar to... Um, like a Facebook, but only women who struggled with eating disorder stuff. And so um, through engaging in this site, um, I actually put a little outline here because I knew I'd forget, but um, the the woman who started this, she's from New Zealand, and she had like a really severe case of bulimia. It sounded a lot like mine, um, but maybe maybe worse in some ways, um, if you could say that. But Um, She wrote some literature, um, just some basic stuff about neuroscience, which I found incredibly fascinating. And a lot of it is similar. If you were here last time when Taylor spoke, it's it's some similar stuff along those lines that, um, like, the first, I think the first step to recovery was understanding my brain and understanding what was going on because shame was at the epicenter of everything. Um, shame of my actions, shame of my body, shame of my very existence in the way that it was. Um, so the, I think my favorite takeaway, too, from that was this sort of uh, field metaphor. Um, if you can imagine the brain is like you are standing in front of an overgrown field with grass grown above your head, and you're trying to get from one side to the other, and there is this perfect path that would take you, you know, less than a minute to get across Um, that's worn down or mowed or something like that. Um, And someone places a machete in your hands, a dull machete at that, (laughs) and says, um, make a new path. This is the way that you have to, this is the healthy way to get across this field. Um, That is insanely tiring, and that takes a very, very, very long time. Um, So you may have some issues along the way. You may want to give up. You may just take that easier path. I mean, our brain, the highways in our brain work the same way. If you've worn down um, a particular, oh, shoot, one minute. Okay. <laughs> you've worn down a particular path. Um, that's the direction that you're always going to go. So I think understanding that made it kind of like not my fault in some ways. And removing that was so instrumental. Um, the second thing was switching from judgment and shame to curiosity So once I understood my brain, I started to get curious as to why I was behaving the way that I was and what was causing it and what was contributing to it. Um, This caused me to change my language from failing. So instead of failing or experiencing a failure, I slipped. It was a slip because that, to me, made it sound less extensive. Um, I also stopped identifying um, or looking at my identity as an addict. My identity is not a sick person. My identity is all these other far more meaningful things. My identity is not a thin person. Um, I, I am who I am, and that was really instrumental. And then the biggest thing, I think, was probably teaching myself self-love. Um, the, this online community, we, um, these women would 
sort of update, like status updates and write blogs about their experiences. And we were asked to comment um, words of encouragement to these other women. And so I didn't realize that by doing that for like an, like literally at least an hour every single day for months and months, just by commenting on these things, when I started to experience these slips or like um, little doses of relapse, I actually had the language. I had um, the words to love myself in that situation. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a long process. And then, sorry, Nick, lastly, I'm hurrying. Um, so another thing that you should know about recovery, um, one, it's, it's incredibly painful. Um, just like drinking a lot on a Saturday, you're going to be hungover on a Sunday, and it's, it's going to hurt. Um, they, I had a lot of physical side effects um, that I won't go into now, but it was just, it was a long, long process. Um, it's also messy and it's not linear. I think anybody who's recovered or changed a habit, you zigzag a lot. Um, and it's, if you can continue to offer that self-love, um, like I learned to do, um, I think you, that's how I experience success. So thank you. Well, I'm going to take a look at the clock so I can kind of at least have an idea. Thank you for inviting me, Nick, and uh, and hearing all the the other panel members. Uh, my spiritual journey is is uh, somewhat different. Uh, my name's Melissa. I'm an alcoholic, and that's usually how I introduce myself in an AA meeting uh, as we go around the room, and uh, and so. AA happens to be my spirit, the spiritual program that I c contribute as the first foundation, the foundation of my spiritual journey and my spiritual life that I, that I live today. But I didn't get there. I, I, my first drink was when I was probably around two or three years old drinking my dad's beer. And it continued to where at age 11, uh, my dad was taking care of the kids and uh, he had some wine, and they moved on to drinking and other things. And I, I had to ask my dad, can I have a glass of wine? Yes, he says. So uh, I kept filling it up. <laughs> it never emptied uh, until my mom got home. And uh, my dad and her uh, had a few words to say uh, about my drinking <laughs> and everything. And so the result was um, my dad checked kept the booze away from me, and we started going to the Baptist church on around the corner. It's a missionary Baptist church, very conservative, and we heard a lot of hell, fire, and brimstone. And, and drinking was not one on the list of things to do. <laughs> it said, you are guilty, and I'm going, I'm guilty a lot of, of a lot of things, you know, as a result. And so I didn't drink until I got out of my out of uh, out of high school and was on my own. And so I began drinking again on a casual basis. And you know I didn't drink all the time and didn't always get drunk, but I did. Uh, but my drinking did increase throughout the years, and it got to the point where I could not predict when I was going to be sober or not. Uh, I was always kind of a functioning drunk, you know. I could get get up and get to work because that's how I got the booze. Because I was very motivated in that area, <laughs> and so uh, my life was 
that was the type of life I had. Uh, the Baptist church taught me a few things. You know, I did learn a whole lot of scripture and everything, and I would try back and forth to go to, go to a church. I would try the, the Methodist church, the Nazarene church, and everything. I never found one that I felt comfortable in. And, uh, of course, I'm still drinking. You know, I don't know why that would have any difference, but it, it did. I didn't feel comfortable in those churches. Uh, and so, and I basically was trying, I would try anything to run from God. You know, I did not want to have God, you know, because I thought of him as, a, my image was of him being vengeful, you know, uh, and... I didn't, you know, who wants to have a vengeful God? And the, so the image of God was, was very much a, a deterrent to finding church. Uh, I went into the military and uh, met friends there. And uh, after I got out, a friend of mine was looking at religious life, and I thought, oh, boy, that's funny and everything. So I went down to Texas. And I was from, uh, from Oklahoma, so I went down to Texas to see her. And I said, she says, well, you'll have to come to Mass with me and everything. I says, yeah, the church will fall in, mm -hmm. you know, jo jokingly. But what I found out, uh, it didn't fall in. <laughs> it didn't fall in, for one. But I also found out that I felt comfortable there. Now, I didn't un understand what they were doing in the Mass. I didn't understand the Mass. I didn't understand the, the sacramental aspect of, of uh, Catholicism at all. Um, and I don't know what I heard, but I did notice that I felt comfortable, which I thought, that's very strange, <laughs> you know. So a couple, about a month later, I went back, you know, to see her. She was still there, and so gave us a chance to, to, uh, keep in touch and everything, and so I went again, and I still felt comfortable, and I thought, oh gosh, this is really strange. I never, you know, and so I went home with the idea of, well, I don't think that would happen if I went to a church in Oklahoma, you know, a Catholic church in Oklahoma. So I did. I went to Sacred Heart. Uh, some neighbors of ours had gone there. They were, you know, and uh, so that's why I knew about one of the ch Catholic churches on the south side of town. There's a lot of churches, on, but most of them were Baptist <laughs> in, uh, in, in Oklahoma City. Most churches are Baptist, so. Catholic churches weren't uh, always around the corner as they are in other areas. But I, uh, I went to church there, and I, it also was, you know, I also found, I was looking at the missalette and, and trying to figure out what the preacher's saying and how to follow through the Mass, and this lady slides over and, and helps me out. The, uh, the pastor then talks about, uh, RCIA, which is the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, and he talks about becoming a Catholic, and you know, that's the process that you use. Mm -hmm. And so I, I ended up joining that part of the, the Catholic Church and, and becoming a Catholic the, the next year. Um, and so that began kind of a second part of my journey, uh, I didn't have a clue about what Catholicism was about, even after going through RCIE. You learn a little bit, and I think it takes probably, it took me three years. You know, first I learned just the basics of, of Catholicism, 
And next, I, you know, I learned, oh, they do this ritual every year, and, and, and I learned more. I was still drinking, and a woman in the, in the church, would uh, she shared her recovery story. And she also prayed for the alcoholic that still suffered, and I'm going, I'm cringing on the inside every time she does. And I finally got the courage to ask her for help, and she took me to my first AA meeting and, and made sure that I got uh, in there and, and found a sponsor and everything, and I did. And they said, you know, read the big book, uh, get a sponsor, and work the steps. And and so while I'm, I'm in AA, and that's a foundation, I also learned that, you know, I don't have to, I can continue learning about this Catholic faith, and that's what I did, uh, going to pastoral ministry classes, because uh, I, I wanted to volunteer and, and be involved in the church and everything. And uh, it, started go, it started becoming hand-in-hand hand with, uh, in my spiritual journey, what I learned in, in AA and, uh, and what I learned in the Catholic faith uh, somewhat differently. I learned that my my image of God in AA, which, you know, I found that God is loving, you know, and I found an image that worked for me. In, I like the fact that in AA, it's a, your own concept of God. So that is what uh, helped me get over that image of God that was so, so vengeful. Uh, the Catholic faith is not at this time, after Vatican II, does not focus on a vengeful God either. Uh, some conservatives are kind of trying to bring it back, but <laughs> I don't really uh, abide by the, some of the conservative ma- manners uh, of things, so I like the more open concept of, of Catholicism. And, uh, yeah, and so that. It was my second foundation. The third foundation uh, happens to be Benedict. I'm a Benedictine sister. Now, I did not plan on becoming a Benedictine sister. Uh, <laughs> that was the last thing in my mind to become. Uh, but it has also uh, became, become for me a, uh, a way of life. It is a way of life, a Benedictine way of life. Uh, and, and we believe in prayer. And I think all three of these, the thing is, the foundation is is prayer and the the relationship that I have with God and with other people, uh, and with nature and with earth and everything. And so I like the idea of of what you're trying to do here, and um, as an open church, because those are the things that you know I also believe in. And with that, I will close. Thank you. Okay, so uh, with that being said, we're, we're now officially open for questions. If you have a note card, you can uh, feel free to lift it up, and Wendy will grab it. And uh, does anyone... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I have a question for Andy. So you talked a lot about um, using CBT. Um, I've seen in a lot of PRTF situations, um, and I know at least in one place in Lawrence, um, they have a community-based treatment that's moving more towards DBT. Is that sort of the trajectory in 
No. Uh, she was asking, okay, so with CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, um, she had mentioned that she had seen a lot of DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, at different places, and she was wondering if that was kind of the direction that maybe treatment was headed. So just to give a really, really brief background, DBT, Marsha Linehan, that's her um, theory that she's been using, and she applies it to the borderline personality disorder population. So these are going to be individuals who suffer from extreme emotional dysregulation. You maybe have known them to be people who are extremely suicidal, engaging in um, very high-risk behaviors. Um, DBT is fantastic with um, the borderline population, and many borderline population do have co-occurring substance use disorders. So even at treatment centers, like even with my company, we do have DBT-trained therapists on staff because the principles are great for it. And so I think there are great ancillary going along with it, but I've yet to see or research anything about a DBT program just for the substance abuse side of it. So yeah, good question. Well, I do know that there is some research uh, where they've been using DBT with adolescents and substance uh, abuse, and I think that's the only, the only population that I know that it has been shown to be effective with, but it's, it's very effective with the group that it was meant or developed for. Um, the question was kind of talking a little bit more about what cognitive behavioral therapy is going to look like in a treatment process. Um, so as a therapist, I do utilize CBT a lot, and I've gone through therapy and done CBT, so I can see the merits that it has. It's going to be a very directive therapy. I think just the first notion, whenever people think, even me, when I was naive and didn't know what therapist was, I thought therapy was everybody sits on a couch, and they had the guy with the clipboard, which is not what everything, that's a psychoanalytic approach. So cognitive behavioral therapy, you're gonna look at people's cognitions and the behaviors that come along with them. So kind of thinking about the thoughts that we have. So how our thoughts influence our feelings and our actions. And so you try to address those. What are core beliefs that you may have within yourself? So if your core belief is, I am unlovable, then maybe you're going to think things like, nobody ever is going to want me, so you're going to feel depressed, and maybe you're going to act out in loneliness, or maybe you're going to shy away from people and be introverted, just for like a quick thought. So with CBT, it's really helpful to try to figure out what's going on with you, what are the triggers, what are some of the things. It's not insight-oriented as much as you would think of maybe the more Freudian approach, kind of like, what does this mean to you? We're going to delve into the deep mysteries of life. But it's also really helpful when you use CBT because it's not um, as long-term, so you can get a lot done in a shorter time period. And so what is the therapy then that you're using? Like the actual activities? Yeah, use the example of what you were just So saying. for maybe an intervention that I would do with somebody in therapy who is using CBT, maybe one of the things we would do is to look at some of those core beliefs, try to figure out what those core beliefs are. And so sometimes maybe an activity would be give them a list of different things, a whole bunches of them, kind of say, circle all the top ones that stand out to you. And then maybe they kind of start narrowing those down. 
and start narrowing those down. Um, other things you can do in CBT is going to be really related to the behavioral side of things, the actions that we do. Um, you can do a lot of um, in vivo work, like in live demonstrations. Like I know when I worked at the prison, all of the women in there, we were required to do CBT just because the grant required that. Um, so we do a lot of role playing. And that's really the best way when you have that transferability of skill from the theoretical into the application. So that role playing is really helpful on the behavioral side, acting out these situations and seeing what you would do. I don't know if that helps answer that a little bit. Yeah, you were saying the core belief is. The core I'm belief. Not, I'm not lovable. I'm so not the lovable. Behavior, the is, oh, so then the action is. So maybe that's what their action. So you're going to do is you're going to counter that. You're going to figure out first a counter. If I'm not lovable, what's a counter to I'm not lovable? I am lovable. So think of things like positive affirmations, things you would tell yourself. Literally, I said, say this to yourself in the mirror 100 times a day. I am lovable. I am worthy. Those kind of things. Those are practical steps you could take. And then on top of the other practical things that you would do, like the in-session work with like acting out things, how you would respond if somebody talked to you. I don't know who that is. Oh, she, she did a lot of affirmative affirmating she, type she stuff. Wrote a book so. says, Thank you. Know your life. And these are a lot of those things that is she's it? saying that says if you say I'm crying every day, well crying represents, you know, sadness, joy. But you can also say accept those feelings about myself and I love myself yeah I think you're gonna see that a lot but you're also gonna see a lot of challenging statements like I go to the grocery store so you're gonna say okay great I go to the grocery store I walk down this aisle I see alcohol then I get the alcohol then I go home then I drink so you're gonna go through and try to do like um, a breakdown of all those scenarios to see what is it where am I tripping up what's this going on you're gonna identify triggers relapse prevention strategies It says you're for Sarah, but other folks can also take it. But at what point did you realize you have a problem, and how did you initially ask for help? And then I, I think this would go for any folks who. Okay, I'll get us started. Um, repeat the question. Oh, yes, yes. So the question was, how did I um, initially know that there or recognize there's a problem, and then ask for help in a nutshell? Um, so I, yeah, I first asked for help um, actually, like, the about four months after the first time that I purged and I realized because it quickly got out of control and so I realized that I was no longer in control and um, it scared me and so in I was a I don't know sophomore in high school and I told my mom and then that's when I initially asked for help um, but I think the the problem was from there um, because I uh, in a lot of ways I wasn't ready to let go of what I was doing. I wanted to want to be better, but that wasn't happening. Um, I actually found in kind of a twist that um, being more open about my struggle was actually the perfect place to hide. Because as long as you're talking about it, people won't confront you about it because they assume you're telling the truth. So it was it was kind of a repeated reaching out and asking for help. And then that, that last like my most recent and successful attempt at recovery um, was more like, I think I was just like flat out just done. I knew I couldn't continue. So that was kind of, I declared my bottom and then asked for help. Um, Nick was was my, my partner in that and um, surrounded myself with community. 
Um, and the question again was, when did I know that I needed? <clears throat> well, I, I knew I needed help for a long time. Or, I knew that I was an alcoholic for a long time, and um, uh, I don't know that I uh, thought that I needed to change for a, a long time either. And uh, you know, for part of me thought that it was a, it was a normal thing. It was kind of my lot in life, and. Uh, um, I think really what what motivated me to change, you know, uh, was when, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it got my attention when, when I was pronounced dead. That kind of was a little bit of a wake-up call. <laughs> but that didn't, you know, I, in a way I was a little disappointed because I was really ready for it to be over with. Um, uh, but what really got me was, was after I'd gone through, you know, getting revived and all that stuff and getting... Uh, through the medical system and off to the to the jail for a little while, uh, I, I went through a lot of effort to make sure that my mother didn't find out. And when they opened up that jailhouse door, my mother was standing there, and the look on her face of just how weary she was from all of this, from from my dad and from my brother. My my younger brother had, had was had died in an alcohol related accident, and so so it was just that look of my mother going, it's like. Oh, there, there is something more than just me in this. So that was the thing, you know, was that having the, you know, the relationship with my mother. Um, for me, um, I too am in recovery from eating disorder, um, binging but not vomiting on the laxative and extra or exercising component. It didn't really click with me until one day I was just at the doctor's office and he's like, "You're doing irreparable damage at this point if you continue forth. There's nothing I can do," and I kind of had like a like an aha moment, like, oh, maybe this is a problem. I didn't really think it was a problem, but maybe it is. And so I was like, okay, well, it had been a secret. Nobody knew about it, and I didn't know what to do. So I just started going to a group that somebody had at a church, and I didn't say a word, didn't tell anybody. I just started listening, and that was kind of like, okay. Other people are saying the same things, and they're saying it's a problem. It, it must be a problem then. Well, I kind of shared what my story was as far as that, as far as the initial. I, I got to the point of being sick and tired of being sick and tired and waking up drunk every morning or at least hung over if I hadn't been drinking. I was still hung over uh, even if I hadn't drank because I drank so much. And, uh, you know, I in, in the fact that I was going to this Catholic church you know, and, and everything. And hearing this gal say, I'm praying for the alcoholic that still suffered, probably made the, the biggest impact. Yeah. So we've talked about broadly, like some of these big uh, kind of theories to recovery. But I'm wondering if, uh, if you all could speak or if some of you could speak to um, a specific like tool or tip or trick that, that really helped you make some real progress in your own recovery. Um, and, I, and I would love to hear, yeah, both like from substance abuse uh, as well as like a process addiction because those are two totally different uh, animals. <laughs> okay, um, so the question, yes. <laughs> the question was any tips, tricks, or tools um, with recovery? Um, I personally, and I know this won't be for everybody, um, I think you kind of have to find your thing, but um, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, that 
um, blew my mind and changed my life because I think for me, since um, so much of it was accepting my body and my changing body through recovery, um, that to actually appreciate every single part of it and to reflect on that in really safe spaces, that was probably, and sometimes it was alone, other times it was in community because being alone is generally a recipe for disaster and recovery. Um, but yeah, I think, I think joining any sort of community of people who are focused on um, self-love and, and um, overall health is, is always a good thing. You just have to find what speaks to you in your situation. Oh gosh, I, I think um, uh, I breathe um, is I think one of the good uh, things that I do. I, I, you know, I just breathe, and you know, I know that when I'm breathing, um, and, and there's a lot of you know different uh, avenues that I, I came to understand that that was really important. Some of them it was mindfulness out of Buddhist traditions and Hindu traditions, and uh, <clears throat> uh, but. Uh, the regulating of the breathing tells the body that you're okay. And so, you know, I, I, I come to understand that, that, you know, I have a body that I'm responsible for. I don't own a body. And uh, uh, <clears throat> that I'm a human being that, you know, I have responsibilities. You know, it's, this is not me and mine. And uh, so uh, I think one of the biggest things for me to get through rough patches is to find something that I can do for somebody. Uh, you know, if I can be helpful to somebody, uh, you know, and it doesn't have to be, you know, going out and saving an alcoholic or it can be doing something nice for the, for the dog or for the cat or, you know, doing a little something extra special for, for my wife or something like that. So I, I think being generous is an important part of, of keeping that kind of good feeling um, and, and, it, and it always remember it's always really important for me to remember that you know you know I would somebody they pronounced me dead <laughs> and that 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 was where I could be uh, and uh, and it would be real easy to go back there if it wasn't so hard to live like that and so I, re I remember even though it's been 34 years now since I've drank it's it's like yeah it's like I still remember exactly what it's like so I think something that's interesting to point out that maybe hasn't been addressed yet and it kind of touches on the, the community side is if at all possible whoever you consider your family whether that's your loved ones etc is make them a part of your treatment I cannot tell you how many people I have helped to get into treatment, for example, and maybe a loved one or a family member has sabotaged that treatment because they were part of a, a family system that was sick. It was dysfunctional. And their role in that family system, whether they were enabling or being the codependent, they really were detrimental to that person's recovery. And I'm not saying you can just point fingers and blame. It's your fault that I'm not this way or that. But, for example, when a spouse goes and says, I'm taking you off my insurance, and they fly out to a treatment center and make you go home, that's going to impact your recovery process a little bit, for example. So I would say great knowledge. And I know because I have a unique situation, too. I have family members who are in active addiction and some in recovery. Thank you, Jesus. But some of them are still in their active addiction. And as a family, it's really important 
what you do, what your part is. Again, we can't control them. That's what you learn on the like the, the Naranon side. You didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it. But you can play a role. So I would definitely encourage anybody who maybe knows somebody in addiction. I guarantee if I asked everybody in this room to raise their hand, if they know somebody who's struggling, probably everybody would raise their hand. You could do your part in trying to help them, whether that's going to like one of the like Naranon or Al-Anon meetings or getting into therapy yourself or do couples counseling, family therapy, something just so you can try to understand. Because maybe you, you're truly baffled and you're like, I don't understand. Why are they doing this? Well, maybe it's your turn to get some help too. So I think that can be an important component for somebody's recovery. I think I forgot the question. <laughs> tips and tools. Oh, tips and tools. Uh, 12 steps, a spiritual toolkit, <laughs> for one thing. Having a sponsor who, who works the steps and, and uh, don't drink. It's easy if you don't drink today. And if you can't do, do it for a day, do it for an hour or whatever. Okay, she's asking, what can the churches do to help those that are addicted? Uh, if they're actively drinking or using a process or whatever, what if they're in their addiction, um, probably uh, see if they are ready for treatment and get them into treatment first. Um, you know, somebody could ask me, you know, getting into treatment when I was ready to stop and, and start working the steps. You know, it. everybody's journey is different, even in recovery. Um, but uh, churches, not to be judgmental, I mean, that's probably one of the first things I would say is everybody's journey is different. Uh, I'm grateful I'm an alcoholic today. Uh, I have a way of life and a way that is... I, I feel truly blessed. Uh, I, I don't know that I could have recovered and felt it at peace totally just with, say, the Catholic Church. Uh, in AA, I, I had some tools. I, you know, they, you know, in a variety of things that they broke it down in bite-sized pieces for me. You know, I could swallow just a little bit at a time, you know. I didn't have to swallow all of the God idea at once. So, and I think that for me that helped. It gave me my own, con I could have my own concept. And, and my own concept uh, does match up really well with the concepts of probably any faith, whether it's Catholic or anything. So. If I could just make one quick statement along those same lines is that I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed in the church. Um, for example, I hosted a town forum on the heroin epidemic. I asked quite a few churches if I could host it at their place. They said no. No. It was a free community service for people. The news was there. I couldn't. I was bad. Why would you not want people to come out and be supported and get educated? I think that addiction in its own right is still like a dirty little secret. 
even in the church. And I feel like if the church would open its doors, I know some places have um, Celebrate Recovery, and if they don't want to do that, that's fine. But there are other ways I think you can support and not make it be like this one sin that nobody talks about. If it's like that in the church, then how is that going to help anybody? So just my thought. Bob, you had, you had talked about uh, the role that I, I would like to hear you speak more about the role oppression plays mm -hmm. in, in, in recovery. Gosh. Um, and what was the question again? What, 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 what's the role that oppression plays in, in, uh, in recovery? Um, uh, I, I think getting getting rid of oppression is is uh, the role that, uh, but it certainly plays a role in in sinking into into addictions. Um, I, I think it's it's no surprise that the the you know the oppressed minorities in our societies uh, uh, have higher rates of of problem drinking. Uh, I think that um, uh, poverty is is a uh, a horrible oppressor of, of people and uh, you know as you know as human beings as animals on this planet um, if you look around and watch the animals you know a lot of my people they talk about you know we learned we learned everything that we know from from the animals and uh, from the buffalo from the wolves and 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 those people and uh, they um, you know if they're not busy getting something to eat uh, they're, they're playing <laughs> they're they're socializing with one another, and uh, uh, and so you know people who who become oppressed uh, often lose that sense that they're connected to a society or that there's room to to kind of play and to be to be you know to have a sense of joy in their lives, and, and I think I think that um, uh, alcohol and drugs or you know, you know, you know. I've, I guess I've been, I've been away from addictions far enough. I haven't heard of them called process addictions <laughs> before. But the other addictions, uh, you know, to find some way to feel good. You know, oh, if only I'll get to this proper size, and then I'll fit in with this group, and I and I'll feel good. And so, so being out, being oppressed out of a group of people, uh, I think is one of the most painful things for human beings to endure. You know, they talk about the. You know, like the the shunning that that some religious orders will do to do to people can be fatal, and we're such we so need uh, community uh, in order to thrive as human beings, and and uh, so 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 coming together uh, in a way that's non-judgmental. And, and to add to the question that you asked about about what religions can do, I, I thought about my brother who who he was he was a horrible drug addict when he was when he was young, and he used to go to this this little Baptist church in the town that we uh, uh, lived near and uh, uh, he'd go there to eat because at the end of the service they'd always feed him and uh, you know they always he always had to stay at the back because he didn't smell too good most of the time but they never kicked him out and they always fed him and and then one day they just asked him to come up to the front you know anybody to come up to the front if it was their time to to, to, to have Jesus into their life and he did and he never used alcohol or drugs again and uh, uh, and so they did what they did. They they accepted and they fed people, which is what you know I think Jesus told them to do. And um, you know they didn't say go out and make all these referrals to these treatments. They said feed people. <laughs> and uh, so so they did what they did. And um, uh, and he then he found his path. And 
So I think, um, you know, kind of getting back to oppression, uh, you know, finding a community of people uh, that where you can, you can empower yourself out of oppression. I mean, obviously, as an American Indian, there's a lot of places in my life where there's oppression that still goes on, even though I'm a pretty privileged position being, you know, a tenured professor and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, I also, you know, was signed up and suited up and ready to go up to North Dakota to Standing Rock to stand with some of my relatives recently because, you know, my people are oppressed. My land still is occupied. And so, so, um, um, but we don't have the kind of oppression that we once had that led to hopelessness. You know, we, we, we struggle and, and you know, I think the finding of hope uh, and, um, and that, that can come in the, in the form of, of finding other people, finding your, finding your people, whether it be an online group, whether it be a religious order, whether it be going back to your tribal traditions, um, uh, you find a group that you can be a social human being in again. So I've struggled with addiction for a while, too. Um, and I was kind of waiting for, like, something to kind of come up. But a lot of what I found to be, like, the most, so I have PTSD. Um, like, the most effective thing for me, at least, was just even, like, going back and being able to process through. Like, because CBT and DBT are blood-talking mindful in the moment mm -hmm. and looking towards the future. And, like, first I had to get free from the past in order to even be able to get to a place where I wanted to live and pursue life. Um, and kind of what I found, I do very spiritual kind of stuff too, a lot with like Christianity. Um, the most effective thing for me is just kind of realizing why I do the things I do and why I feel the way that I feel and why I think the way that I think. And then just kind of looking at how I want to live my life and how Jesus would live his life and he's kind of living in accordance with that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. A round of applause for this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for coming.